0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now here's your host, Mark Graben.
1: Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 320 of the podcast. It's October 9th, 2018. Skip Stewart, the Chief Improvement Officer at Baptist Memorial Healthcare in Tennessee, was a guest on episode number 314 of the podcast talking about training within industry and Toyota Kata in healthcare. He was joined by Brandon Brown. Well, today I've asked Skip to come back and chat with me one-on-one here in episode 320 about his experience with Don Wheeler, learning from W. Edwards Deming and many other topics. I hope you enjoy his reflections, our discussions about healthcare, and connections to my book, Measures of Success. I think Skip undoubtedly has a book in him uh, I hope he I hope he writes it someday. I hope he comes back on the podcast. So if you want to find links um, to everything we talk about here, Skip uh, and Baptist have a great YouTube channel. Um, I, I would encourage you to go check that out. You can find links uh, to all of that by going to leanblog.org slash 320. Well, Skip, hi. Thank you for coming back this time to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Mark. Thank you for having me back. Well, I'm glad we'll have a chance to explore, um, you know, some things that we just barely touched on uh, the last time you were on the podcast. Um, If you, you know, just jump right in. You know, I'm curious, how did you get introduced to Dr. Deming's work and and philosophy?
0: So um, when I started my career in uh, 1992, I was um, at that time, uh, in an industrial engineering, quality engineering role. And I had also enjoyed uh, statistics and tutored folks in statistics in college. And, and I uh, was sent to some workshops with uh, Dr. Don Wheeler, the gentleman that en- endorsed your new book of measures of success. And um, Dr. Wheeler was very kind that for some reason he took me under his wing mm-hmm. and uh, he would have, I would call him on a regular basis. And, and then I would start going to Knoxville, Tennessee, where a lot of his workshops were. And I would go to his understanding statistical process control or I went to his advanced class. Uh, one of my favorite ones was evaluating the measurement process, which is using process behavior charts for measurement equipment and so on and so on. But during those same workshops, uh, Dr. Wheeler would introduce us to Dr. Deming
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, give us a uh, that's where I think I got my very first out of the crisis book mm-hmm. and I met a lady at that uh, workshop named Margaret and she was a, uh, an assistant to uh, Dr. Deming up at, uh, I believe it was New York state or the, the university he was connected to up in New York mm-hmm. uh, I may have be wrong about the name of the university, but uh, she was a very kind lady and she would send me uh, articles of Dr. Deming that he was, you know, he had written and and, uh, and so I, I was introduced that way. And if you remember that back at that time, we didn't have the internet. So we had uh, VHS tapes. And I would mm-hmm. get these tapes from Margaret and others about if Japan can, why can't we, the famous NBC, uh, interview that they did with him. And so I was just soaking it all up about Dr. Deming's, uh, view and what happened in Japan and not only his experience with things like statistical process control, what we call process behavior charts today, but also his uh, perspective on how we should treat people, how management should think about managing an organization. So that was my initial uh, introduction Uh, and also I was introduced, uh, uh, it kind of became a domino effect. I was introduced to the work of Dr. Brian Joyner, which I really enjoyed a lot with his book, fourth generation management and went to some of his workshops and, and then also Peter Schultes, which was also part of, uh, uh, went to some of his uh, workshops and he was uh, involved heavily. And I was wrestling through what Dr. Demings and Peter Schultes and Dr. Joyner and Dr. Wheeler for sure Mm -hmm. would do is, um, is, they make me, they made me wrestle through why do I believe in what I believe in and how should I think about as a, as a young professional, um, how should I think about, um, uh, things like what I call today, purpose, people and process, um, how should I think about that? Uh, and Dr. Wheeler, uh, it, it was, he was always so kind to let me call him anytime and he would always answer my calls on her. I think at one time I probably called them every month for several years, but yeah. there were times when I tend to have to wrestle through things to get them in my little brain. And, and I can't tell you the number of times that Dr. Wheeler would say, Skip, have you ever read chapter three of this book? <laughs> oh yeah, Dr. Wheeler, I've already read that. No, no, you didn't understand it. Go back and read it
1: and call <laughs> me again. <laughs> and so that was kind of my initial introduction. Yeah. Well, so there's a lot to sort of, you know, unpack and, and dig into there. Um, you know, for one, um, yeah, I did, I did look up because I wasn't sure either. I forgot. Dr. Deming uh, was teaching at NYU. That's right.
0: That's at, right.
1: At, at, at points uh, in, in his career. And, um, you know, I think I've, I've, I'll, I'll tell the listeners, I think, I think I've told you this privately, Skip, that I'm going and taking um, Don Wheeler's uh, four-day workshop in Knoxville uh, in the second week of September. That's Great. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because you know his book Understanding Variation um, you know has been incredibly influential to me my dad took a, a class Dr. Wheeler taught at General Motors probably in the mid 90s and my dad as an engineer had that book around and and that was some of my um, earliest introductions so uh, I'm really really excited to go and and get beyond the books and and, and learn more and, and see how he teaches it. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, that's great. I highly recommend it. Um, so he's got, uh, and he's got other books that, you know, I've discovered, you know, in, in, in the past year that that take a lot of deeper dives um, into, into this topic. And one other thing you mentioned, um, the NBC program, if Japan can do this, why can't we, uh, the Deming Institute uh, was able to get the rights, and, and, and that's available freely now on YouTube. That was a show from 1980. Have you been able to revisit that at all recently? You no, know, I, I did go back and look at it on YouTube. It was a while back. Um,
0: but uh, the ones that I personally enjoy the most is uh, is uh, a friend of Dr. Deming, someone that worked with Dr. Deming at, uh, in the early days was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Russell Akoff. Mm-hmm. And he, many people refer to Dr. Akoff as the father of systems thinking. Yeah. And there's a couple of YouTubes out there. Uh, there's lots of YouTubes of him talking, but there's one out there of him and Dr. Deming talking and having a conversation. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's one with Dr. Russell Akoff with, um, Dr. Deming's secretary. And, and they asked him a question. They said, uh, we noticed that you always called Dr. Deming's Ed. You never called him, uh, and he said, why is that? He said, well, because we grew up together. He said, that's what he was. He said, I was Russ and he was Ed. And it's kind of <laughs> neat to see that, that origin, but it also was very neat to, to uh, re- wrestle through their thinking and to see how they thought about things and why. And And I think both of those men left us lessons, but unfortunately some of those lessons we have to keep on learning We haven't seemed to learn many of them. When I was reflecting back uh, with Dr. Deming and with Dr. Russell Aikoff. I was somewhat surprised on how maybe we haven't still learned some of those lessons.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we we can talk about, I, I think you and I are in agreement. A lot of these lessons are incredibly relevant today, even though Dr. Deming passed away in 1993, I think in a lot of ways he was very, very far ahead of his time. And, you know, he, he was really, uh, in a way introduced to a a broad American audience in that NBC program. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. You know, it's really, really fascinating, um, um, to see because I think Dr. Deming in the U S was sort of unknown or underappreciated compared to his work, uh, in Japan. And, you know, when I've been to Japan in recent years, um, Seeing you know hospital executives and business leaders uh, bring up Dr. Deming uh, quite frequently that that he had a huge influence. I, I believe the Deming Prize is I don't know for a fact if the Deming Prize is still an active prize, sort of like the Baldridge program mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. But Dr. Deming is still very revered over there. I think for good. And that was
0: my experience too. I mean, first of all, my wife tends to tease me a lot that uh, my friend uh, Margaret that worked for Dr. Deming she had him sign a book to me uh, in 92 and then he passed away. And like you said, 93 and my wife always teases me when you play those newlywed games, you know, type or <laughs> games, you know, if, if the house was burning, what's the one thing you would grab? And My wife, Oh, he would grab that, you know, uh, Dr. Deming book on the shelf, you know? And so, and um, you know, uh, but when I have talked to Toyota executives, I find it interesting that two two things that they'll bring up to me in conversation, these are just run-of-the-mill type uh, folks, these aren't necessarily high profile, is that they'll bring up Dr. Deming's name and they'll bring up uh, PDCA. Mm -hmm. And I find that very interesting.
1: Yeah, and I I think that'll be familiar to a lot of listeners. Um, I think hopefully people would recognize that as being part of uh, lean thinking, you know, the plan, do, check, act, or, you know, we, we could talk for a whole half hour about, you know, words and terminology, plan, do, really. study, adjust. A lot of people in healthcare say PDSA or you have variations of plan, do, study, act. Um, but right. that, that is, people will call it the Deming cycle. Dr. Deming called it called it the Shuhart cycle after Walter right. Shuhart, who kind of preceded Dr. Deming. And yeah, this company is in Japan. Um, And and there's an interesting language that's used to kind of dive into this a little bit. They'll say, spin the PDCA cycle. And they really mean cycles of, you know, this is sort of, you know, and that makes me think of like, you know, there's motion and momentum. Well, you you know, it's funny is that I was talking,
0: I've I've done some work with uh, um, Mr. Yoshino that uh, Mm -hmm. was um, uh, John Shook's uh, boss that. Knew me and done done a lot of work with uh, Katie uh, Anderson and uh, and I remember one time we were down in uh, Mississippi uh, having dinner and uh, I can't remember how the conversation came up but I said something to the effect of you know in your forty years of uh, at Toyota what was the one thing that impacted you and you learned the most he didn't even blink an eye he said he said P D C, A. And then he goes on to say, Skip, it took me 10 years to learn each letter. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of yeah. laughed when he said that. But then I kind of walked away thinking, I'm not sure he's completely making a joke out of this. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, like, like a lot of things, I mean, on the surface, it seems so simple. And, and I think that's one kind of fascinating thing about a lot of lean concepts. When you really kind of, you know, unpack it and, and practice. And then you start realizing what you don't know. Right. Like in recent years um, I I was introduced to a term. I don't think somebody was accusing me of it, but there's times I'm guilty of it. uh, Dunning Kruger syndrome or the Dunning Kruger effect. It's a Mm. psychological term that says, you know, it's kind of human nature when somebody is first learning something, we all tend to overestimate our understanding.
0: Mm. Right. And I see
1: this with lean. It could probably happen with PDCA. Someone goes to initial class and they think, Oh, I learned that and kind of like the past tense. I know that. Right. And then we go and and struggle and maybe kind of realize now we, we know what we don't know.
0: But you know, that, that's a really good point even in, in, that's even a discussion in itself. What you're talking about is the difference between knowledge and skill, you know, uh, um, you know, you know, knowledge and skill are so radically different. And I've learned that again, you know, with my daughter uh, the last year, I've been trying to teach her how to drive and she's doing really well now. But when we first started, very smart young lady went and took a driving test and, and aced it. Big deal. I put her in the car. She didn't know where the brake was or the gas pedal or didn't know what any of the mirrors were for. So she had knowledge but no skill, and um, and so even you know at, at Baptist Memorial Healthcare where I work and with the Baptist management system, we think a lot about the difference between knowledge and skill. I can do a workshop on you know various subjects, but that doesn't mean you have skill, right? And and we have a whole industry out there that. Um, They do lots and lots of training, but that doesn't mean the person, you know, has skill. And so uh, I continue to reflect on that. And what does it take to bring about skill? uh, And that kind of builds on what
1: you're saying. Yeah. And uh, as we talked about in the last podcast, when you and Brandon Brown, you were talking about training within industry, there's the idea that the teacher needs to validate that the student has learned. And, right. And not just fall back and say, well, you attended the class. Therefore, I assume you absorbed it and can put it to use. Um, tr- effective training goes beyond that. Right? Well,
0: you, you're absolutely right. I'm really glad. So we do a tremendous amount of TWI training within industry, job instructions, job relations and job methods. And what I continue to discover to build on your earlier point is that there's much profoundness and simplicity. And so that even that phrase, if the worker hasn't learned, the instructor hadn't taught. Um, you know, John Wooden has said to have been connected to that. He used that in his coaching. But sometimes I'll actually have folks that get a little offended with that statement mm-hmm. because they'll say, "Well, what do you mean?" You know, because they fall so in love with their PowerPoint slides yeah. or whatever it might be. You know, even in our TWI class, what we'll tell people with the job instructions. It's a 10-hour class, and you may have been very engaged in the class. It's two hours each day, Monday through Friday, but you don't really have any skill. We've brought you intensely aware of the subject, and you have to do a project in the class. But we are then, we then have a responsibility to come up after the class and do a validation and verification process to where we have to see, did you really learn that new skill and is that new skill growing and learning?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and it's even true with um, with the process behavior charts and understanding variation and all the things that you, you write about in the measures of success. Um, you know, one of the, the quotes from your book that I really liked a lot was Don't ask me what page it's on, but it said something to the effect of.
1: Don't ask me either.
0: (laughs) It said, it's better to have the thinking Uh without the tools than it is the right. uh, Yeah, without the tools than it is to have the tools without the right thinking. And I really like that quote a lot. Dr. Wheeler used to always say something to the effect of that, um, that the SPC charts or the process behavior charts was a way of thinking and that the chart acted as a catalyst for this thought process, but without the way of thinking that the chart had nothing to act upon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He, he said, you know, my, what, what I wrote, you know, is was, uh, you know, I think inspired by Dr. Wheeler and I cited him in my book, um, you know, SPC process behavior charts are a way of thinking with some tools attached. I, you could say the same thing about lean. You know, A3 problem solving is a tool, the template, and it's not even the specific template, you know, start with a blank sheet of paper. It's the way of thinking. Right. Because you can have you could download a template from the Lean Enterprise Institute and, uh, you know, jump to a solution in the title of the A3. Right? right. Or, you know, you could write out the A3 to sort of, you know, finagle your way to a predetermined solution. That's not what the A3 thinking um, is supposed to be. And, you know, if someone's teaching a three thinking, um, there, there need to be those checks. And I think of it as a, I'll bring it back to a PDCA cycle. You might call it plan, teach, evaluate, adjust, or whatever letters you want to use. Right. Because sure. the, way, the way you or I are communicating something to one person might not resonate the same way with a different person. So this is what I, I challenge, I feel the challenge of teaching a class with 20 people in it, those are 20 unique individuals with 20 um, unique sets of backgrounds and comfort level with statistics or lean or Excel or, or what have you.
0: Well, and, and, and you're right, and you know, the other thing that makes a lot of that a challenge is going back to that skill acquisition is um, sometimes within the lean community, we tend to violate, in my opinion, our own thinking. For example, we tend to do batch teaching. And uh, so you'll, uh, so for example, let me go back to the TWI. The way that class is set up, we do no more than 10 people and it's two hours each day. And, And I've taught, I've probably personally taught that class, oh, 50 to 60 times what's in what's very interesting to me watching human behavior is that right at two hours, people's (laughs) eyes will tell you they're done.
1: Yeah. That's all I can take in. That's
0: all I can take. You know, I've digested as much as I can take. Now, if we want to go out and do some work, that's great. But sitting in a class, I can only digest so much, but a lot of times um, I'll have people call me and ask me. And as you know, Mark, I'll, you know, volunteer, you know, I'll give any help I can give, but I can't tell you how often someone will say, well, can we just knock this thing out in one day? <laughs> well, yeah, we could academically, but is that what's best for the student? You know, are they going to really learn from me shoving 10 hours in an eight hour day? And so we're kind of, we want to batch it through, but that's really not what's best mm-hmm. for the person that's yeah. learning and growing from that skill.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, it, you know, that's an interesting question you raise of, um, you know, do we violate lean principles? Um, you know, and I try to be mindful of this as well. I'm, you know, uh, trying not just to not, not point fingers at others. I know you're, you're, you're reflecting and not pointing fingers. Um, no, that's at, right. Yourself skip. But one, one thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, telling versus uh, engaging. And, you know, this, this is something, and, and I've done a couple podcasts about an approach called motivational interviewing, which is, you know, kind of a, 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 a newer school of counseling and, and therapy. And one, one thing, and I think there are a lot of connections to lean thinking, or we could connect it to Deming, where, you know, they'll say the old model of therapy was the therapist as expert, the mm-hmm. therapist telling the patient what to do. And it turns out that's not very effective or it's not very sustainable. You get um, compliance instead of real intrinsic change. Dr. Deming talked about intrinsic motivation. Um, And so motivational interviewing puts the counselor in the role of coach of helping the patient, or we could think of helping a client or helping an employee work through their own change process. Right. right? Instead of telling them what to do, Asking them, why is this important to you? And that that um, really helps activate intrinsic motivation, allowing someone to convince themselves to change. This is not manipulating them, but this is asking questions, being supportive, having their best interest in mind. You know, there's sort of thoughts that come from this approach asking, you know, these are challenging questions. Like, do you want to be right or do you want to help that person? (laughs) Sometimes being right feels good, and there's human nature in that, but it doesn't help the other person. So anyway, to to wrap up the thought, though, I see the irony, and I've been guilty of this at times, and I see leaders do it, um, telling people in a very top-down way, you need to participate in continuous improvement, which seems kind of ironic. It seems to miss some of the spirit. It's well-intended for the individual um, in the organization or there's that advancement of like, well, I'm telling you to do it and I'll, uh, I'll explain why, right. as opposed to asking the employee, why would you want to participate in continuous improvement and getting them to articulate that? I
0: completely agree. I uh, was introduced uh, a year or so ago from, with some books from a group called the Arbinger group and they have one called the outward mindset. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it kind of builds on a lot of what you were just saying. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I heard somebody um, talking about that yesterday at um, our Kinexis user conference. And I met one of the Arbinger Institute people. I've, I've got one of their books, um, Leadership and Self-Deception, yeah. which yeah. Um, I need to uh, pick up and read. But that seems like a scary book to give someone because I'm like, well, are you accusing <laughs> them of self-deception? That's that's. Well, that's and, and I that. think I think
0: you were building on something really important there. Uh, you know, Mark, you know, um, a lot of folks completely understand uh, the, the whole wanting or maybe falling into the quote unquote expert role, but really, I think doing a really good job of coaching really comes with a lot of humility, right? Because um, I want, I want the real people that do the real work in our healthcare system I want them to be the experts. Right. So um, we've been working with some partners like Intermountain and others. And at first they'll call and someone will say, Skip, could you come help kick off XYZ, TWI, job instructions, whatever it may be. And what I try to do and have been successful so far at doing is saying, well, you don't really want me. They'll say, no, that's why we're calling you. I'll say, no, no, you want, don't you want like a real nurse or a real practitioner that really touches patients and really does. Well, wow. Yeah. You in other words, and so we try to connect them up with those people mm-hmm. because that's what we're trying to do. And that's what I think, you know, dimming, there's so many things that he, I was looking through out of the crisis last night knowing you and I were going to talk and it was one of those. Wow. Look at what's
1: been sitting on my bookshelf.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there was this, some some nugget or gem that. Yeah. Out at the you. What would you the
0: reason that I loved your uh, Measures of Success book, the reason I just loved it and plan on reading it a second time was it was, it was a good positive nudge on saying, Skip, remember how you started your career off. Remember mm-hmm. how, remember the influence of Remember of Dr. W- and it was like all these thoughts came flushing through, and it, but it came flushing through in a nice, fresh way because you get some different uh, perspectives and some different thoughts, and just um, and I'm not saying this for you, and I know you haven't asked me to do this, but I highly recommend the Measures of Success book yeah. because I think it reintroduces a dialogue
1: that maybe someone has forgotten about. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. And so maybe, you know, let let me bring it back to um, I'll say, likewise, real experts like Dr. Wheeler. Um, I want to come back and and sort of dig deeper into, you know, earlier you brought up the idea and we frame it in terms of what you learned, you know, from Wheeler or or Deming, but, you know, statistical process control um, process behavior charts. And then this idea, uh, I want to know, hear more about what you said around how we should treat people, because, you know, I think, Dr. Deming sometimes gets labeled and described as a statistician, which I think sells him short. Um, You know, he, in his, um, you know, system of profound knowledge that he wrote about in his later book, the new economics um, he's, he talks about the importance of psychology. And I'm pretty sure he said at one point, the most important thing for a manager to understand is psychology and to understand Their employees as unique individuals, which to me sounds like Toyota and respect for people. And you know, uh, there's there's theory of knowledge and and how do we learn? But I'd be curious, you know, just to tee up those thoughts. You know, first, could could you give you know from your perspective maybe a bit of a summary of process behavior charts and and how how would you what, what what would your elevator pitch be? as you're introducing or reintroducing this to people maybe in your workplace.
0: Yeah. So uh, as we're starting to introduce, you know, one of the things that once again, I always take a little phrase from my friend, Pascal Dennis, he always calls it drip, drip, drip. You know, you can only introduce stuff so much, but we have at the Baptist management system been focused on showing people a certain uh, framework of thinking and an approach by what means we will improve as as dr dimming would say it but what but what you so did such a great job in your book of reminded me is we've got to let people also know how do they know if they actually have improved mm-hmm. and um and so we definitely introduced run charts that you know that doesn't seem like a big deal but in healthcare uh, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily use run charts so we've see- introduced run charts to let them see that variation but as I've literally started in the last couple weeks or so even after kind of having a wake-up call from your book is that I've handed out um, I've introduced him to your book and I've handed out dr. wheeler's book understanding variation and I've taken some of our data even as of today and had a conversation uh, I was looking at some readmission rates and I was uh, and falls and I was talking to some people about the data and, um, and started off the conversation with people I knew that I could have a conversation with because at first, when you introduce people to process behavior charts, it's going to hit their paradigms in a hard way. It's mm-hmm. gonna, and, and so I wanted to make sure that I, in a very respectful manner, let them know what the data said. And right. so we had, um, we had one chart that of one hospital where they were looking at the readmission rates. And I asked them, I said, do you think that you've gotten better um, over the last couple of years? It is natural and almost automatic to say, oh, yeah, we've gotten better. <laughs> right. Hardly anyone's going to say, oh, we've gotten worse. And I said, well, w- would you be open to having a conversation about what I'm seeing in your data?" And I explained to them and I said, there is something that you may not be aware of called the voice of the process. And now at this point in time, I've got four years, five years built into a relationship with this person, of treating each other with mutual respect. And so I knew I could have a conversation with that person. And and I said, well, there is something called process behavior charts. And I tell them a little bit about where they came from. And I normally just show them uh, the individual X-chart, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, the data. or in, in this scenario, I actually showed them both the individual X-chart and the moving range because this particular CEO uh, uh, likes statistics. And I said, okay, let's just talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I said, let me tell you what each little data point is. It's, you know, uh, the overall uh, readmissions divided by the discharges, you know, so we, we, how we came up with the percentage. And it was uh, two and a half years, almost three years worth of data. And I said, uh, this chart is incredibly
1: predictable. Now at first, they tend to want to smile as if that's- And, and by predictable, sorry to interrupt, but you mean like you know, the metrics just fluctuating around some average in a prediction. It's
0: fluctuating around the average and it is statistically consistent. Yes, and, yep. And so it's very consistent. It's And so that's what I mean by predictable. Uh, there, is no, there is not any unusual things going on. Uh, it's just uh, it goes up, it goes down, it's fluctuating around the average. And so I explained how the limits uh, was developed, but I said, we refer to this as the voice of the process. So if the chart could talk to you, mm-hmm. it would tell you this. It would say, I'm doing the very best that I can do. On the average, um, I'm gonna be at, I think it was like, um, I wanna say it was like at 15%. Uh, on the average, I'm gonna have a readmission rate of 15%. But uh, on any given month, I could be as low as 8% or at 20 something, like 24 or something percent. Right. And none of that is unusual. Let me, let me explain that again. It's all go into saying, so on any given month, if you had a readmission of 8%, it doesn't mean you should have a pizza party. Mm -hmm. And if you had a readmission one month of 20 something, 21%, let's call it, it doesn't mean that anyone should get in trouble. The process is doing the, I'm doing the very best that I can do. It would
1: tell you, if you don't like me, then you better change me if you don't like that range, right? So yeah, those, what, what you described, I've had people read the book and write and say, yeah, that's really familiar. People get too excited about every uptick and they get too upset about every uh, below average point. Um, and then you know, the other common dynamic is someone calculates those natural process limits that are, like you said, the chart talking to us and they say, well, I don't like those limits. Those limits are too wide. Well, that's back to your point of, well, then you need to improve the system, right?
0: Well, and that's funny. You said that's a good example because one of the things that I think we've been conditioned at in our society is we tend to spend so much time um, thinking about the voice of the customer. That could be a specification. It could be a Medicare target, it could be a Medicare penalty if you go over a certain threshold. These are all, not to say they're not important, I don't wanna imply that, but those are all targets and uh, metrics that are outside of the process. The process doesn't even know that those exist. It's leadership's requirement to line up the voice of the process and the voice of the customer. And so a lot of times people will do like you just said, they'll say, Well, that's unacceptable. And and I, I understand why they would say that. But that metric, by what's making them say that's unacceptable, that's the voice of the customer. Right. The voice of the process says, I'm doing the very best that I can do. If I'm too if the variation from month to month is too high for you, then you need to fundamentally change how you're playing the process or to use a sports analogy i'm kind of excited that college football starts tomorrow and Uh, for me it started last night it started last night okay (laughs) was it it successful uh northwestern one yes good good well but but in the in the analogy you know a lot of times uh sports fans college football especially down here in the sec they get very emotional Mm -hmm. and And they'll talk about, uh, you know, they don't like the outcome. Well, if you don't like the outcome, then you're going to have to change how you're playing the game. Right. And a lot of times they'll even use analogies of being a victim. And and I'll explain, I'll name a certain team. I'll say, well, do you know that this team right here has more NFL players than any team? Mm. And they're not even close to the national title discussion every year. So it's not about, Having the best players is it is about how you're playing the game,
1: right? Well, and and if I, I'm pretty sure this is before we started recording, you were talking about a system and you used um, the car analogy. I think you cited Russell Acoff, I've heard Atul Gawande use the example of you take um, you, you benchmark the auto industry and look for best practices, so we'll take an engine from uh, Lamborghini and the transmission from Honda and seats from Mercedes and you collect all those parts, you wouldn't have a functioning car. That's right. And I think the same is true with football. You could recruit um, all of the best five-star individual players, but that doesn't always make a system either, right? That's right.
0: That's exactly
1: right. That's exactly right. And so, and it's the same thing with healthcare.
0: So, Uh, My daughter had to have her appendix removed in January. My daughter never said, dad, what a great lab, what a great radiology, what a great ED, what a great discharge process. She was traveling horizontal through the process. We tend to focus vertically and we call them silos. And the funny thing about that, Mark, is everyone recognizes that silos exist. Right. but recognizing it isn't enough. You have to understand how
1: do all the parts interplay together. Yeah. So I want to come back. You, know, you talked about some of those dynamics with process behavior charts that you know, people working within that system are doing as well as the system will allow. So that you know, it's one thing to make the chart, but this comes back to the question of how we should treat people. Right. Right. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, So a a phrase that we like to use a lot with the Baptist
0: management system is purpose, people and process. And uh, I would argue that Dr. Deming was talking about all four or all three of those when he gave us the 14 points. Mm -hmm. I think his very first point was, you know, uh, create constancy of purpose for improvement of product and service. So that's purpose. He talked a lot about people when he talked about eliminating slogans, when he talked about eliminating numerical quotas for the workforce uh, and so on. One of his points uh, was remove barriers that rob people of pride and workmanship. Obviously, we know he talked a tremendous amount about process, but at the end of the day, people, you're not going to get anything done without people. And I I think that... uh, uh, oh, uh, the folks out there in California with the uh, what's the car called? Um, I just went blank. Uh, Tesla. Tesla. I think they're learning. Hopefully, they're learning uh, yeah. that that
1: uh, you need people. So one of the well, and uh, just to, to interrupt real quick, you know, Elon Musk. You know, at this point, maybe it's a, a famous expression. He said, "Humans are underrated." You know, when he oh. had this vision of an incredibly automated Model Three line. And then they were having all kinds of trouble, and they basically slapped well, slapped together um, a secondary assembly line in a tent that was very manual. And he said that was performing better. Mm. And then he tweeted, "Humans are underrated."
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah, are they really learning from that, or was that just a temporary detour until they get the robots working? That's right. That's right. You know, here's here's the thing I've always discovered.
0: Uh, with our work that we do, is that um, people can will always surpass even what I think they have the ability to do. Humans are so incredibly creative, amazingly creative, that uh, when that is channeled uh, correctly, wow, watch out. But some of the things that we think about is we, uh, TWI Job Relations is a very important piece of our Baptist management system. For me, it's the best way that I personally know on how to operationalize respect for every individual. And um, I can't tell you the number of people, once they go through JR Job Relations and they start practicing it, they'll, they'll come and they'll say, skip. They almost have a confession time that they'll tell me and Patrick Gropp that from the TWI Institute that you know, Mark, they'll say something like, uh, they'll say I've been a, you know, a leader for 20 years or 25 years and I've just realized that my job is not just to watch people and write them up when they step outside the rules, but my, my job is uh, to uh, have a relationship with them. Like right. we, have a, we have a phrase that we say in the class that leaders, have followers now that doesn't sound very profound but i think there's much profoundness simplicity because you are not a leader just because of your title or because of your degrees or certifications you're you're a leader if you have a follower so i have i have people in our in our baptist management system that i could pick up the phone right this moment and say, I need you to run through a brick wall for me. Now, they don't report to me. They could could not even answer the call, but they're willing to do that because, you know, and so I think that's very important. And then-
1: Well, I I just want to add a thought there, um, bringing it back to Peter Schultes, who you mentioned earlier. You know, I think, you know, people, someone may formally, they may be told they report to you, quote unquote, But they choose, I think this is what you're saying, they choose to follow you. Um, I'll bring it back, before coming back to Schultes, I think one of the key insights of motivational interviewing is that you can't make anybody change. People choose to change. If they're not choosing, that's just compliance and that's not sustainable. And the the Peter Schultesism that I always come back to, he says, uh, people don't resist change, they resist being changed. Right. And so, you know, I think you could make the argument that, um, for, you know, for, generally speaking, forcing people to change uh, in some cases might be necessary, but it's probably disrespectful. And mm-hmm. it's not as sustainable as working with people and, and get, helping lead so that in a way that allows them to choose a change. And again, I don't mean manipulating them, but leading, sure. letting people, you know, respecting individuals. Um treating them like adults, letting them have input and think and and come around, and that's slower than saying, Well'll do it because I said so right? well
0: and and that's a great point and and to, bu- to keep on building on that, a lot of times what what some people refer to as catchball mm-hmm. uh, one ceo in our system refers to it as no, they're not doing catchball they're doing catch anvis anvil i mean catch, catch anvil an- <laughs> yeah. and so and I'll give you a great example of catch and respect. So my boss that you've met, Dr. Paul DePriest, Mm -hmm. he he does the best example I've ever seen in five years. He'll shut the door and he'll ask me so many times, you know, um, he'll say, what do you think about this? And he's really asking my opinion. And I can't tell you the number of times I'll say, I don't agree with that. Dr. DePriest. he will say, you don't. I'll say, no, sir, I don't. And I'll, I'll just, adamantly not agree with it Mm -hmm. now many times i come to discover on my own that he was right and i was wrong Mm -hmm. and there's been many times he's called me up even as of today and said you know what i think you're right about this Mm -hmm. and on a on a disagreement but he allows me to be me and he allows me now if it's an issue of as an organization we need to go a certain direction and he may let me say my, my point, but when we walk out that door, if we've determined that we need to go in the direction that he thinks we need to go in, then that's the direction that we're going to go. in. no one really knows about that disagreement except him and I behind closed doors, but he respected me in such a way to allow me to wrestle with him mentally about why I believed in what I believed in. Yeah. And and here's a thing I think Mark also to bring it back, uh, Remember, a system is more than just a physical system, like a car. You know, we call ours sure. the Baptist Management System. So, you, we've talked about this subject of variation with process behavior charts, and we've talked about treating people. And, and we had, we brought up Peter Schulte's and others. Mm-hmm. But another gentleman. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna connect those two just like we would connect a car. Mm-hmm. And you you quote. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Brian Joyner, and, and Dr. Brian Joyner has a great, great quote that when people are forced to hit a goal, a target, a number, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. do one of three things. They either distort the system, distort the data, or improve the system, right? Right, right. If Would they don't- have them doing the third, of course. <laughs> right. If they don't know how to improve a system, and if they don't understand variation, then it's right. going to be natural for them- to distort the data or distort the system. And a lot of times people misinterpret when they first hear that, they'll say, I'm not necessarily saying that someone's being intentionally deceptive, but many times people can distort a system or distort a data um, without knowing they're doing it. For example, in healthcare, if you bring up the subject of falls, the thing that comes out of someone's mouth Instantly, is are those falls with harm or are those falls without harm? Hmm. And so we've, we've started to cate- I understand why we categorize the data, but a lot of the falls without harm is because you got lucky.
1: Well, and I think, yeah, our, um, I think it's that question of are we categorizing or are we making excuses for? Or are we trying to better understand the problem so we can solve it? Or are we sort of excusing or at least subtly excusing that some of those falls were okay? That's a great, that's a great, but that's an example of
0: connecting, understanding variation, understanding human psychology and people. Right. And how does, how do all those things work? So we think a lot about respect for people. Uh, that's a principle we, uh, we embrace the Shingo uh, principles uh, in our Baptist management system. Not just because I'm a Shingo examiner, but we, we embrace them as an organization. Our leader, uh, Jason Little, our president uh, and CEO. He, uh, I don't know if there's been a week that's went by in the last five years that I haven't heard him talk about empathy. Not just empathy for the patient, but empathy. Uh, um, uh for the the real folks that do the the patient caring work you know mm-hmm. and so um i think without that element of respect for human beings and understanding the power and the creativity of, of, of people that um
1: that everything
0: else is you could argue is going to be impossible to do mm-hmm. No, that's, that's even, really even, yeah. even another element of TWI that we're early on at introducing is job methods. Uh, the historians argue that Kaizen events and a lot of them came out of an origin of job methods. I did a little video on our YouTube channel, me and Patrick, recently, and I was explaining that what one friend of mine, Dr. Alan Robinson, says is that job methods is nothing more than he calls it an idea activator. Mm-hmm he's actually right about that because what's really cool is you can get people together that they really don't know much about JM or, or a lot of the improvement, but they work in that process. And as long as someone can guide them through that process, what you're doing is you're questioning the process. So you're encouraging a questioning attitude and through that process, you're trying to generate ideas. Um, and, and it gets a, it becomes a very creative process. But what right, you're really right. doing is you're celebrating people's creativity, which is also doing what it's respecting
1: them. It's honoring them. Right, right, right. Um, so I, I think we'll, we'll go ahead and, and wrap up. I mean, my gosh, there's so much um, at some point we could dig into. Let, let's do, let's do more podcasts when you have the time. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But to to wrap things up, I mean, maybe it's just, you know, open-ended question or if there's some other final thought you want to share, you know, of of the 14 points or, you know, other lessons for Deming, what's the one lesson that you wish more people would embrace today here in 2018 because it would be helpful?
0: Um, I guess the, you know, I'd have to, I'd really have to reflect on all 14, but I guess the one that it was a tough question I threw at you. Very (laughs) tough. I guess (laughs) the one that I reflect on the most that I think about the most is two thoughts that I think about the most. One would be his very first point about creating constancy of purpose.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, It's so easy to get distracted. I get that. Uh, you know, you hear, you hear people talk about multitasking. I think there's even science out there that argues that yeah. you really can't multitask.
1: Right. And
0: um, so I would say that would be the point that I think about, but then, and I may mess this up, Mark, but you remember his quote where he says that a bad process will uh, kind of ruin or destroy a good person every time. Right.
1: Right. There's variations of that. Yeah. A bad system will defeat a good person every time or something.
0: Well, as you know, Mark, when I, when I get into, uh, when we get into this work, that, that phrase comes to mind quite often. It came to mind two weeks ago when I was looking at how nurses at a hospital uh, handled uh, IV pumps And I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this process is killing these poor nurses. They just want an IV pump. (laughs) And they're having to hunt and find and hoard, you know, and steal an IV pump, you know? And so um, I think those are the two that come to mind quite often.
1: Yeah, and I'll I'll build on it maybe as a final thought where again, like, you know, I think the influence of Dr. Deming on Toyota, the Toyota production system, um, is so clear. I think sometimes that has, uh, in a way, gotten lost in translation into what we would generally call lean. Um, but I, the, the expression I've heard, I always think back to Daryl Wilburn, who's an American who worked for Toyota um, for for a long time. I have a chance to go to Japan with him in October to go and, and learn from him. and and others, but, um, uh, Daryl pro- said these really profound words in the talk. He said, it's the responsibility of leaders to create a system in which people can be successful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, it's just think that word responsibility. Mm-hmm. I just see too many cases where, um, I, it, unfortunately leaders uh, are blaming individuals mm-hmm. for the system. And those individuals don't have, the ability they're not empowered uh, to improve the system or it's 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 a system perspective that's far beyond their level in the organization regardless of how creative they are for kaizen there's the system Mm. design issue at a bigger picture that that's the one philosophy um i i I wish more leaders would that's good that's real good And I think we can tie it to the statistical process control charts because that or AKA process behavior chart will help us show what the system is capable of. That's right. That's exactly right. And also let's let's you know, maybe we can um, come back to that question to kick off another podcast. Absolutely. We'd love to hear more about what you're working on there within uh, Baptist in the context of the Baptist management system. Love that. That'd be great. Um, really enjoy, um, as always, having the chance to talk with you, Skip. And um, thanks, thanks so much for coming back and taking time to be part of the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Mark. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast.
1: For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast,
0: email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.